Victoria Woodhull, the first woman candidate for president of the United States, sat out the election in a jail cell. She was intense and ambitious, naive and unprincipled, and, to modify a phrase from the era, high-minded but low-living. She achieved several firsts for women in America, yet her impact on the women's movement was so controversial and in the end so negligible that the Woodhull, as she was known, is a minor figure in feminist history, but a fascinating one. The Woodhull was born Victoria Claflin in 1838 into a squalidly poor family in the tiny frontier hamlet of Homer, Ohio. Her sister Tennessee came along seven years later, and a third sister, Utica, after her. Their father, Buck Claflin, was a con man who sold patent medicine as the king of cancers. Their mother, Roxana, was an evangelical Christian who spoke in tongues and ranted fire and brimstone at the neighbors. Victoria and Tennessee were still children when Buck had them out performing as spirit mediums and faith healers. Victoria claimed to have visions of Jesus and Satan and to receive advice from spirit guides who included Demosthenes, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, and Juliet. Like most kids in that era, the girls got little formal schooling. Instead, they learned the lessons a con man's daughters would, how to charm, beguile, entice, and swindle people out of their money. Tennessee and Utica would grow up to be basically sex workers. Victoria would also use sex to get what she felt she needed out of men, but with Victoria, everything had to have a higher purpose and be taken to a higher level. She didn't just want people to desire her and give her money. She wanted them to admire, respect, and even adore her. She'd say or do almost anything to get that from them, and she was good at it. Men didn't just fall in love with her, they fell in worship of her. The neighbors in Homer considered Buck a scoundrel, his wife a lunatic, and their daughters wild and dangerous. They actually took up a collection to pay the Claflins to go away. That was the start of a long period during which the Claflins roamed like a tribe of gypsies from the south up to Chicago and Canada, selling snake oil, staging seances, telling fortunes, and effecting miracle cures. Victoria and Tennessee's beauty and their healing powers became the stuff of legend, as well as a lucrative business supporting an extended family of some two dozen relatives. At 15, Victoria eloped with Canning Woodhull, a drunk twice her age who sold his own elixir of life. After having two children with him, a developmentally challenged son, and a daughter she gave the wonderful name Zulu Maud, she would divorce Woodhull but keep his name. Yet she could not shake him, even when she married the dashing Colonel James Harvey Blood, a war hero, believer in spiritualism, and devout progressive. The three of them would live under the same roof. In 1868, 
Demosthenes advised Victoria to move to New York City. He even gave her an exact address, 17 Great Jones Street, near the Bowery. Apparently, the ancient Greek orator knew that New York was stuffed with cash and millionaires looking for ways to spend it. The whole Claflin clan piled into the house with her. Buck sent his daughters out to bewitch one of the very richest men in the city, Cornelius Vanderbilt, known as the Commodore for his vast empire of steamships and railroads. They easily charmed him. All his life, the Commodore had been both superstitious and addicted to pliant young females. Victoria and Tennessee filled both needs. Victoria gave him market forecasts that proved to be uncannily accurate. That's because her, many of her tips came from a network of female friends she and Tennessee cultivated in brothels favored by men of finance. Following Victoria's advice, the Commodore made more than a million dollars on the gold market and passed along enough to her to make her suddenly very wealthy. At the same time, Tennessee cheered up the old goat, as she called him, in other ways. Marriage to a useless drunk had gotten Victoria interested in women's liberation, but she had no patience for the women's movement of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, which had been around for a quarter of a century and accomplished little except to fall into two camps, a liberal group based in New York and a conservative Boston-based one. Following custom, each group had chosen a male figurehead. Henry Ward Beecher, brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe, pastor of Plymouth Church in Brooklyn Heights, represented the more conservative Boston group. A man named Theodore Tilton fronted for the New York one. He had started out Reverend Beecher's most devoted acolyte at Plymouth Church, but over the years had broken away from his mentor taking more radical abolitionist and feminist stands than Beecher felt comfortable adopting. Tilton was smitten with Woodhull, as her men usually were, and despite having a wife in Brooklyn Heights, became her lover. Victoria decided that women needed not only the right to vote, but complete personal and financial emancipation. To that end, with the Commodore's generous backing, in 1870, she, Tennessee, and Colonel Blood opened Woodhull, Claflin & Company, the first woman-run brokerage firm in Wall Street history. It was a gigantic sensation. Men thronged to the opulent offices on Broad Street, most just to gawk, but some actually sought financial advice. A separate entrance admitted women investors, who also flocked to the firm. With the insider tips Victoria and Tennessee got from the Commodore and from the ladies in the brothels, the firm flourished. The Woodhall Claflin Menagerie, still including both of Victoria's husbands, moved uptown to a palatial brownstone on East 38th Street near Madison Avenue. Next, Victoria announced that she intended to run for president against the incumbent, Ulysses S. Grant, in 1872. It's a classic example of her taking things to extremes. 
Women would struggle for 50 more years just to get the vote. Victoria leaped right over all that and ran for president. When the city's newspapers treated her candidacy as an amusing novelty, she, Tennessee, and Blood started their own 10-cent newspaper, Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly. Under the motto, Progress, Free Thought, Untrammeled Lives, it mixed financial news with a hodgepodge of radical politics and fringe social theorizing, much of it coming from the mind of one of the era's great eccentrics, Stephen Pearl Andrews. He was a linguist, a lawyer, an abolitionist, and a dabbler in just about every fringe social and political movement of the day. He introduced Victoria to an idea that would be her downfall. Free love was one of the hottest issues of the Victorian era. Everybody argued about it, and nobody agreed on what it meant. For some, it simply meant a license to have sex, which is why when many Victorians heard free love, they thought free lust. Mainstream feminists, anxious not to be get, get dragged into scandal, said it meant that a woman should be free to choose whom she loved and not be shackled in loveless marriage simply for financial support. For her part, Victoria seems to have taken to free love as a rationale for the way she and her sisters had always lived anyway. Andrews became a fixture in Victoria's Murray Hill Brownstone, and it was said that they became lovers as well. Victoria let him fill the weekly with all sorts of offbeat ideas and extremist opinion, including his translation of Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, its first appearance in America. That the house organ of a Wall Street brokerage was promoting Marxism seems not to have concerned them. In 1871, Victoria was the first woman ever to address a congressional committee, speaking out for the right to vote. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton began inviting her to address their conventions. That year, she made what came to be known as her Great Secession Speech. Speaking for all women, she declared, We mean treason. We mean secession and on a thousand times greater scale than was that of the South. We are plotting revolution. We will overslew this bogus republic and plant a government of righteousness in its stead. She announced the platform of her Cosmopolitical Party, mostly written by Andrews, with touches of anarchism, communism, and free love. Meanwhile, Andrews put Victoria and Tennessee at the head of New York's Section 12 of the Communist International Working Men's Association, which he helped to found. Victoria's public speaking engagements now became free-for-alls, mobbed to the rafters with crowds that mixed her enraptured fans with her booing enemies. Gossip, alleging Victoria's and Tennessee's freely lustful ways spread. Some of it was fanned by Reverend Beecher's sisters, Catherine and Harriet, who took it upon themselves to purge the women's movement of this provocative upstart. Victoria didn't help her case when she let a heckler at one of her speeches goad her into crying out in exasperation, Yes, 
I am a free lover. I have an inalienable constitutional and natural right to love whom I may, to love as long or as short a period as I can, to change that love every day if I please. And with that right, neither you nor any law you can frame have any right to interfere. The heckler was her own sister Utica, who was drunk and apparently jealous of her famous sibling. It's one of the tragedies of Victoria's story that she seems to have been genuinely naively shocked by the viciousness of the backlash she caused. The tide of public opinion turned against her with crushing speed and force. She was attacked from all sides as an adulteress, bigamist, heathen, whore, anarchist, and communist. In Harper's, the famous cartoonist Thomas Nast drew her as Mrs. Satan. Investors left the brokerage. Advertisers fled the newspaper. The Commodore withdrew his support. Even the communists abandoned her, dismantling Section 12 because, Karl Marx himself said, it had become too involved in the women's franchise and all sorts of nonsense. Battered and going broke, in May 1872, Victoria accepted the presidential nomination of the Equal Rights Party, a loose coalition of feminists, spiritualists, and communists. The party nominated Frederick Douglass as Victoria's running mate. He never publicly acknowledged the honor, and she barely had time to enjoy hers. By June, her landlords had turned her family out of their home and her brokerage out of its office. She asked Henry Ward Beecher to speak out for her. A word from the great man might still have saved her, but he refused. That was the last straw. Woodhull thought she knew something about Reverend Beecher that few outside the Plymouth Church leadership did, that he had been doing some free loving of his own with some of his adoring female parishioners. Theodore Tilton's wife miscarried a child, and she confessed it was Beecher's. The Plymouth leadership convinced all parties to keep the story a secret for the sake of the ministry. In the November 2 issue of Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly, three days before the election, Victoria told what she knew about Reverend Beecher in lurid detail. It ignited the biggest sex scandal of the century. Buyers drove the price of a single copy from 10 cents to $40 by the end of the first day. Anthony Comstock, who was just starting his career as New York's moral watchdog, had Victoria and Tennessee arrested on obscenity charges. Stephen Pearl Andrews and Colonel Blood were also jailed. Victoria and Tennessee were still in the Ludlow Street Jail on election day. She was only on the ballot in a handful of states and evidently got too few votes to be listed in the official count. She and Tennessee were finally released at the end of November. After long delays, they would eventually go to trial and be acquitted. Meanwhile, Tilton filed a lawsuit against Beecher for alienation of affection. The trial, held in the Brooklyn City Courthouse in 1875, was the epicenter of the media circus of the century. 
Neither side dared to put the Woodhull on the stand. She was too unpredictable. But it was understood that she was the provocateur who dragged the whole unfortunate business before the public. For all the hoopla, the trial ended in a hung jury. Beecher's reputation was permanently, but not seriously, dinged. It all made Victoria so ill from exhaustion and stress that at one point her death was publicly announced. But she was nothing if not a survivor. She rose from her deathbed and dragged herself to speaking engagements around the country in 1875 and 76. But this Victoria Woodhull was a new and chastened person. She now cited the Bible instead of Stephen Pearl Andrews. Rather than free love, she now spoke out for the sanctity and purity of marriage. When she saw that audiences were responding favorably, she characteristically took this new message to extremes. She declared that when she had said the words free love, she had meant God's love, which is free to all who come to him. It did not mean what she was now calling abominable lust. In 1876, she divorced Colonel Blood. It was one of her more callous acts. She needed a partner who could help her, her dig herself out from under a mountain of debt, and the colonel had never been the money-getter of the two. Also, he was a link to the scandalous past she was now trying to bury. She even trumped up a charge of infidelity against him. The newspapers had a field day crowing about the former high priestess of free love ditching her husband for infidelity. In 1877, Victoria and Tennessee fled to London. She did more speaking and writing there, always the new message about the sanctity of marriage and motherhood. A London banker named John Bidolph Martin attended one of her talks and, like so many men before him, was helplessly enraptured. It took him six years to marry her, during which time she went to desperate extremes to prove to his family that she was worthy of him. She denied any responsibility for the Beecher scandal. It had all been the work of Stephen Pearl Andrews and Colonel Blood, who had involved her good name without her knowledge or approval. American newspapers howled. The Boston Globe called it as big a lie as was ever told. Then again, she also claimed that Buck Claflin had been a highly respected lawyer and that she was de descended from English kings, Alexander Hamilton, and George Washington. London society never warmed to her. The more she denied her past, the more the newspapers kept digging it all up again to refute her. When her husband, gallantly supportive to the end, died, he left her a handsome country manor in Worcestershire. Here, she seems finally to have found the security she needed and a measure of the respect she always craved. She played the stereotyped English country lady for the rest of her life, involving herself in local flower shows and charities. She lived on past the turn of the century and through the Great War, by which time her scandalous past finally faded from memory, 
without her having to deny it anymore. She died at the age of 88 in June 1927. It was two weeks after Charles Lindbergh made the first transatlantic flight, and seven years after the 18th Amendment was ratified, finally giving American women the right to vote.